Our sermon passage today is from the book of Galatians. We're continuing on in this sermon series in Galatians, Living Free. And this morning, our passage is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your phones, or it's printed for you in your bulletin. Now as you're turning there, I don't think it's any secret that I'm a big UNC fan. If you know me more than a couple of weeks, chances are I've brought it up. And I've been a big UNC fan, particularly UNC basketball, since I was four years old. Um, It was actually my first conscious act of rebellion. My parents were uh, big Duke Blue Devils fans. And the church I grew up in, when we got a new pastor, I was four years old, and this family was a big Tar Heel uh, family. And so I decided at four that I was going to break with my family tradition and take on the mantle of this uh, UNC fandom. So I've been a big UNC fan, but it's very interesting to pull for a college that I did not go to. I did not attend UNC Chapel Hill. No one in my family has ever attended UNC Chapel Hill, but I'm still a fan. I have the t-shirts. I pull for the, uh, the teams. I watch the games. But it's very interesting. From time to time, I'll encounter other UNC fans, people who did attend there and have the degree on their wall to prove it, that look at me like I'm a second-level fan, like I'm almost not qualified to pull for UNC. After all, they went there. They're the real fans. They have the right to wear the shirt, cheer on the team. They have the degree on their wall, like I said, to prove it. I mean, it's on their resume. I bring that up because in the churches that Galatians was written to, there were some Christians who were acting exactly like those UNC fans. There were Jewish Christians who were looking down on non-Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus, and they were telling them, more or less, you're second level. If you really want to be qualified and be fully, truly accepted in the people of God, and have assurance that God has accepted you, then you need to become culturally Jewish like we are. They were saying, your resume is not up to standard, and you can't rightly pull for this team. You need to add something to your faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus alone for salvation is not enough for us to recognize that you belong to the people of God. Paul writes the, Paul, the letter to the Galatians in part to expose this for the lie that it is. And as he's doing this, Paul proves his point by telling his own story. We've looked at that over the last few weeks. He presents himself as an example of what it means to encounter the grace of God in Jesus Christ that shakes and then remakes us He shows how he went from being someone who defined himself by his passion, by his heritage, by his good works, to someone who discovered a grace in Jesus that was not dependent on his ethnicity, was not dependent on his religious faithfulness or anything else. He found the good news of the gospel, a victory accomplished by Jesus for him that he contributed nothing to, but that he receives all the benefits of by faith and faith alone. Paul tells his story to show what happens when the gospel claims the center of a life. Because what happens is the gospel becomes the new gravitational center. Everything else has to orbit around it. Everything else has to reckon with it and be fitted in place around the central 
good news of the gospel. And that's true not just of Paul, but of everybody that comes to faith in Jesus, which is what he starts to speak of in our passage today. That if God is who he shows himself to be in Jesus, and he is, if the gospel is true, and it is, that God gives grace to people without regard to their ethnicity, their good works or their bad works, then what does that mean for our life together as God's people? What does that mean for how we welcome people who are very different from us? When that said, that brings us to our passage today, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. and meeting privately with those who are esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you inspired, that in it you show us who you are and what you're up to, and thus you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments as we look into the treasures of your word that you would move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the height, depth, width, and breadth of the love of God in Christ, that we would be awed at his glory and beauty, and we would be made like him. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to break the sermon up this morning into a couple of different sections to get our minds around it. And the first one's this, the gospel brings different people together. The gospel brings different people together. Jesus was Jewish, and so were all of his initial disciples. You can see it in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when Jesus preached, when he arrived on the scene, he never presented himself as starting a new religion. When you look at the book of Acts, which speaks of that first generation of the church, and it contains the preaching that those first apostles did, you'll see that they never presented Jesus as starting a new religion. Rather, Jesus showed up on the scene as the fulfillment of the hopes, dreams, and frustrations of the Jewish people. Jesus showed up on the scene as the thing to which all of the Old Testament and all of God working in the Jewish people had been pointing all along. And when Jesus arrived on the scene as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the Redeemer of God's people, these Jewish people 
placed their faith in Jesus and they were captured by the gospel that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God had brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. For the first few years, the church was made up of people with similar backgrounds. They were uh, people that had been raised in similar ways, had the same basic cultural values, had the same basic experiences. So when they'd gathered to worship, when they did life together, it was people who spoke the same languages and had the same culture, ate the same foods, did the same kinds of things, same family structure, etc. But as the church began to grow, as the years passed and missionaries would go out and church planters into new cities and new situations, the face of the church began to change, that demographic. People who weren't Jewish at all heard the same gospel, and they placed their faith in Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, people were brought together who had nothing else in common other than faith in Jesus. The gospel brings different people together. And this is not a problem. It is a reality to celebrate. The gospel brings very, very different people together. And this is not a flaw. It is a feature of the kingdom of God. It is something that was primary to the mission of Jesus. We read uh, a portion of Ephesians chapter 2 earlier that what Jesus was doing was destroying in himself this dividing wall of hostility that stood between people. He was removing the barrier that stands between people, that part of his mission, again, was to bring very different people together in him. Now, this reality that God brings different people together in the church, it may come with difficult questions. It may come with the question of what does it mean for me to love a person very different from me up close? Not just hypothetically. What does it mean for me to be in community with someone who is very different from me? What does it mean for me to consider someone very different from me, a brother or a sister in the family of God? Someone whose existence has a claim on me. Someone that I have been joined to by faith in Jesus, joined to this person. And those questions can be hard to answer, but they are not a problem to solve. They're a reality to celebrate. They are not a flaw. They are a feature. Now, our church, we're a small and growing, but a young church. But even in our number, there's lots of different people here. There's lots of different people with lots of different experiences. We have different uh, educational levels. We have different uh, family backgrounds. We have different things that we've done for work and different things that we're talented in and good at. And what binds us together? What binds us together isn't that we have the same experiences or the exact same culture or the exact same preferences. What binds us together truly is that we are people who have encountered the grace of God and Jesus that we did not earn and cannot lose, we are people that have been found by grace and bound together by this Savior who has rescued us. And so that what that means for us and our attitude toward each other is that we start out from a place of welcome. 
We start out from a place of opening my heart, opening my life to one another. We welcome each other because Jesus has welcomed us. We walk in humility with one another. We admit that we may have blind spots and often things that we think really, really matter don't actually matter at all. And things that we prefer have to be brought to bow before the Lordship of Jesus. In the church, we realize that we have much to teach one another and there are things about God and who He is and His glory and grandeur that I will only ever learn and see and know and experience because of you, because of our friendship with one another and how He works within you and through you and for you. For instance, I'm a person who never had a moment that I can remember when I came to faith in Jesus. I'm somebody who from my earliest remembrances could sing, Jesus loved me, loves me, this I know, and the Bible tells me so, and believe that what He had done was for me. I never had a moment where I went from not believing to believing. And that's okay. That's a good thing. It's not a flaw in my story. But it does mean that it, when I have times of doubt, when I am struggling, one of the things that I can uh, start to tell myself is that, well, nothing supernatural happened for me. You know, my experience, uh, maybe I could try to explain it away by, you know, historical circumstances or the family in which I was born or et cetera, et cetera. But there are people in this church and people in my experience who have had the opposite experience from me. They are people who the grace of God finding them was like a light shining into pure darkness. They went from having no hope to the profound hope of the gospel. And it can be explained as nothing short of a miracle, a supernatural experience. Well, the truth is, that I need those stories. I need to know those stories in my doubts to see the way that God works, to see the way that God applies the gospel to very different people. This is just a for instance of how the gospel brings different people together, something that I've said, but it's to point out it is not a flaw. It is a feature of the kingdom of God. We need each other. If we are going to have the 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 grand picture of who God is presented to us. I can only see part, you see, maybe more than I do. When we put those together, we have a bigger picture and a truer picture of who God really is. The gospel brings different people together. It's a crucial part of what Jesus died to make happen and rose again to make happen. And that means, like everything that Jesus accomplished and is accomplishing in salvation, it is 100% something worth leaning in on. It is 100% worth it and 100% worth, 100% uh, part of our mission as a church to step into this, even when it's difficult, maybe even especially when it's difficult. Because right here, is one of the ways that the gospel is proven to a skeptical world when they look at a group of people who are profoundly different from one another but are unified in, uh, in, in faith in Christ, are unified first and foremost by the grace of God and Jesus. 
It's the gospel putting flesh on in a sense. It's people seeing the reality of God's power at work. It's something that we confessed earlier. We used the Belhar Confession, which was written in 1982 in response to apartheid in South Africa. If you know anything about South African history, the 20th century was actually a progression of them becoming more and more a structurally racist society. You had a small group of white people who were controlling government, were controlling everything, and the vast majority of people in South Africa were disenfranchised entirely. In 1982, church leaders in South Africa met together and wrote a mission statement, a confession of faith called the Belhar Confession. And this is what it said. The unity that is ours in Jesus is both a gift and an obligation, something for us to earnestly pursue and seek after. And this unity must become visible so that the world may believe that the separation and hatred that exists between people and groups is sin which Christ has already conquered, that anything which threatens this unity may have no place in the church and must be resisted. Friends, the gospel brings different people together and it's a wonderful thing. That brings me to my second section. The gospel sets the tone. In our passage, the Apostle Paul describes a meeting where leaders from from churches in two very different cities come together to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because the gospel has brought different people together, and that's not always easy. They are stopping before, or they're having this meeting, before things Uh, become a crisis, and they're saying, okay, if the gospel's proven in our lives together, then something serious is at stake when we allow preferences or cultural differences to cover up and divide us. So let's come together, let's speak with one another, and make sure we're on the same page. Now these leaders are from two different cities, the cities of Jerusalem and the city of Antioch. These were about 300 miles apart, but were worlds different from one another culturally. Jerusalem was the longtime capital city of the Jewish people. It was the place where Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead, and it was home to the first church. This is where the first Christians primarily were based. And culturally, uh, Jerusalem was profoundly Jewish, 99.9%. In fact, the only non-Jewish people probably living in Jerusalem were Roman uh, soldiers stationed there. And when we speak about the leaders of the Jerusalem church, we're talking about people like Peter and John who traveled with Jesus. We're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. But then you have Antioch. Antioch was a completely opposite city. At the time, it's the third largest city in the world. Think New York. Incredibly diverse, very, very different people living beside one another. And none of the original disciples had any ties to Antioch. But it seems like when the gospel arrived there, whoever brought it there first, it began to spread like wildfire in a good way. It began to grow quickly as people heard the gospel and placed their faith in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul is arriving from Antioch, bringing with him uh, two other leaders to meet with the leaders from the Jerusalem church. And in our passage, he makes it clear this was not a meeting for him to be validated by them, that all the validation he needs is from Jesus, and that the kingdom of God operates by fundamentally different rules. 
meaning that what has happened in Jesus means that the usual way that we measure somebody's worth has been flipped on its head, that church is a community of equals, that no one is more important than anyone else, and that grace isn't something that anyone other than God controls. That yes, the church is a place with leaders who have important callings, but it is not a place of masters and servants, of lords and unimportant people. That there are no unimportant people in God's kingdom. That's the point that Paul's making when he speaks about, like in verse 6, the leaders there. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. His point is that the church is a community of equals with very different callings. And he was not going to Jerusalem to bow down before them, to, to lift up his supplication, to hope that they will accept him. No, that the gospel means that we don't operate that way. Going with Paul is a man named Barnabas, who is well known to the churches in Jerusalem. In fact, we can think of him kind of like a former pastor coming back to town. And the third guy that was with him was someone who wasn't known in Jerusalem at all and had probably never been there, a man named Titus. Titus is interesting because he's not Jewish whatsoever. In the passage, Paul calls him a Greek. But Paul knows, and this is why he's bringing Titus along, Paul knows that Titus is an incredible example of what God has done. What has happened when the gospel has come to a person who has no Jewish background whatsoever. And I think that Paul actually brings Titus along along because he knows the issue is, are we on equal standing? Are non-Jewish and Jewish Christians on equal standing with each other in the kingdom of God? Paul doesn't want this question to be a hypothetical or an abstract one. He brings Titus along so Titus will be in the room to remind everybody that we aren't just talking about a hypothetical. We are talking about people represented by this man who is in the room. And what we say and what we think and what we do profoundly affects and impacts him. Now in the passage, it speaks of it as a private meeting, but it looks like some people actually crash the meeting. They maybe found out it was happening and arrived uninvited and unannounced. And Paul calls them false believers who had uh, infiltrated to spy and to make us slaves. And this is all very strong language. It's important for us to realize Paul's not talking about the leaders in Jerusalem. He's not talking about the majority of the people in the Jerusalem church. He's speaking of people who heard of this meeting, forced their way in, and tried to make a scene and demand that the leaders who were meeting there forced Titus, who was, again, not Jewish at all, had never been circumcised, never followed Jewish uh, customs or kosher laws about food, try to force him to be circumcised. Yet what happened in this meeting? Paul and the leaders in Jerusalem did not give in to them for a moment. This means that when those quote-unquote false believers showed up and they tried to demand that this happen, that all of those leaders from those two very different cities recognized they're on the same page and that the gospel that Titus believes and the, the gospel that's being preached to these non-Jewish people who are coming to faith is the exact same gospel that Jewish believers believe. Same page, same team. In fact, further than that, they recognize in this passage, as Paul talks about it, that Paul was just as called 
to preach as they were. The same gospel to a different audience maybe, but that his calling was just as valid, just as true, and his gospel was just the same as what they preached. That the same message, that anyone can be righteous by faith in Jesus, was what they were announcing. Same team, different roles, same page, that the gospel is not just for one type of person or one type of culture, but it's a gospel for all peoples, that faith in Jesus is resting and receiving on Him as He's offered to us, not a list of things to do, and that in the church there are no levels or hierarchies. There's no varsity and junior varsity. There's no A team and B team. That our place in the community of God's people is secured by Jesus and Jesus alone. As I called this section, the gospel sets the tone. These quote-unquote false believers came in and they tried to demand something else. And these leaders went back to the gospel. The gospel sets the tone. That brings me to my last section Um, The gospel brings different people together. The gospel sets the tone. And finally, the gospel heals our blind spots. As I've said, the leaders of Antioch and Jerusalem met. They're on the same page. And then you may notice in that very last verse, verse 10 of our passage, the Jerusalem leaders, they only give kind of one requirement, one expectation from here. No, the Christians in Antioch, they don't need to, the non-Jewish Christians don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow Jewish, uh, uh, they don't need to become culturally Jewish and follow the kosher laws. But this, verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The Jewish leaders are saying that what will mark Christians as Christians to the surrounding world is a concern and a way of life that is concerned about the poor. What will mark Christians as Christians is a love that looks outward. That faith in Jesus is a faith that is made perfect or complete in love for others. It's where it's shown. Now, why did the, the leaders in Jerusalem feel the need to add this? They're on the same page. Why did they feel the need to send uh, Paul and Barnabas and Titus back to Antioch? with this um, request to remember the poor. Well, Antioch was a prosperous city. It was far more prosperous than Jerusalem. In fact, we know that the Jerusalem church was really poor. And in the cities of the Roman Empire, Jerusalem was a very poor city for the most part. And in fact, we see early on in the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem, there's great needs, material needs. And so people are selling their property off to bring the money to care for everybody in the church. In fact, the very first deacons in Acts chapter 6, they are called and their purpose initially is to make sure that the food distribution to widows in the church is done properly. I think the point here is that the Jerusalem church is materially poor. They're not wealthy at all. And they look at this church in Antioch, a prosperous city, assuming the church there was prosperous as well, and maybe they see a blind spot. 
Now, maybe that doesn't mean that the church in Antioch wasn't generous. In fact, we have evidence that they were. They were, in fact, the missionary sending church. It's where Paul was based out of and probably where he got the funds for him to go off and do his church planting. It's later on where Peter actually will base his work too. But maybe this was an occasional generosity that looked like, in our world, a willingness to write a check for a good cause, but not to jump in entirely. To write a check for a good cause, but not to give one's life entirely to the other. Maybe there was a prejudice at work in Antioch, and the wealthy looked down on the poor. Maybe they looked down on the poor, and as poor people came to faith, they would not entirely Accept, accept them. It may very well be that the Jerusalem leadership saw this in the Antioch church and reminding them, people who aren't Jewish don't need to become culturally Jewish to follow Jesus, but we do have to have an eye to the poor. I think we can see here a point I made earlier that the unity we have with each other in the gospel is crucial for us. That we need one another that the churches in Jerusalem needed the churches in Antioch to help them see their cultural blind spots, to help them begin to overcome their inner prejudice that had threatened to become systemic and institutional there in the church's generation. The church in Jerusalem needed the church in Antioch to pull them back, draw them back to the gospel that sets the tone, but also that the churches in Antioch needed the churches in Jerusalem to help them see their blind spots to help them overcome a way of life that did not prioritize concern for the poor. The good news here is that the gospel addresses our blind spots. That doesn't mean it's always easy. After all, we don't like hearing that we have blind spots. We don't like hearing that we are ignorant. But when we come back again and again to the truth of the gospel, that my value, my worth, my justification are entirely tied up with who Jesus is and what He's done, then we are able to... We are free to face difficult truths, to move forward in love, and to find the gospel, often through our brothers and sisters in Christ, healing our blind spots. Not just exposing them, not exposing for shame, pulling them out into the light that they may be healed. This morning we've heard a lot how the gospel brings very different people together how grace can be difficult, but it's worth it. How the gospel sets the tone. How concern for the poor is an essential marker for the people of God. But all of this, in truth, goes back to the basic thing we've talked about here in Galatians. That the gospel that sets the tone, the gospel that heals us, the gospel that brings very different people together is the A to Z of who we are. It is not just the front door and we move on to something else. It is not just the on-ramp to the kingdom of God and getting down the road is something else. It is not just the first steps. It is the whole path. The gospel is the whole thing. The calling to us in our passage is for that to be true, not just of how we think of ourselves, but how we think of others. That we are called not to create a bunch of hoops for people to jump through before we welcome them, But we are called to make Jesus and His love for us and His love for others the main thing, the central thing. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would take what we have explored this morning and You would take Your Word and apply it to our hearts. 
that he would enlarge our lives to uh, see ourselves not just as individuals, but as people, very different people who have brought, been brought together. That we would not be afraid of the reality of diversity, but we may celebrate it. And that you would teach us through one another what it means for the gospel to be applied in a world such as ours. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.